cliffcentral.com. The one thing that fascinates me about the advertising industry is the ability to turn an idea into something tangible that is fundamentally then going to work. Hi, everyone. Once again, welcome to Market Share. This is where I chat to people who influence the way brands are built, big brands and small as well as people who have had a big influence on marketing, advertising, and the media industry. So, today I turn the spotlight, or should I say the microphone, on someone who is usually asking the questions. Someone who has supported and promoted the media and marketing industry for many, many years. A legendary journalist across all media platforms. He is a brand himself, and a really nice guy. Welcome, Jeremy Max. Reg, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you today. I just want to say right at the very outset that I make a living out of asking people questions. So when the tables are turned, when I am now the subject of someone else's interrogation, um, I have to tell you there's a light sheen of perspiration on my forehead and I'm a little bit anxious. But over to you, sir. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. <laughs> we'll start. Oh, Reg, I've, be, I've been in this business. I mean, you know, a lot of people joke and ask me if I knew Carl Gutenberg at the start of the printing press. I started my newspaper career on the Eastern Province Herald. And you know, Reg, I think it sounds a little arrogant maybe to say that journalism was a calling. But I remember when I was in high school reading and then watching the movie All the President's Men about Carl uh, Bernstein and Bob Woodward. It had Robert Redford and, and Dustin Hoffman in the movie. And I remember that awakening something in me saying, I want to do this. I think I could be a journalist. I was lucky enough to be blessed with an ability, not necessarily to write well, but to write quickly. And that has stood me instead for a long time in my career. And, um, I was kind of single-minded in pursuing that goal from from high school. I was one of those lucky people that knew exactly what I wanted to do. My father, um, my late father, he died last year at the age of 95. He was always keen for me to go into the bank. He was a, a, a lifelong banker. He was with Ned Bank all his life. I always used to joke with him and say that, you know, he'd been in the business such a long time, he knew Ned. Uh, <laughs> but he wanted me to go into banking. And I remember him saying to me, Jeremy, at the age of 40, you could reach the heights of being the branch manager at Edenvale. And I knew then, Reg, that I'd made the right decision in choosing a career in journalism. No disrespect to Edenvale. No disrespect to Nedbank, but I'm glad uh, that I made the right career choice. And then you landed up at 702 and started on radio. Well, Reg, I mean, 702, it was a, a rock and roll station then, and I was so lucky to have worked with some of the real legends in radio. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about the inimitable uh, John Burks, Chris Gibbons, who hired me at 702, Obviously, uh, Stan Katz. These are all names of radio's great pantheon. And, you know, someone who also really shaped my life, um, who was behind the scenes at, at 702, the, the uh, 
the station manager for a long time and not too many people know about her, but also a great force in radio at the time, uh, Rena Brumberg. And I was very lucky to work with all of these people and they shaped my career in radio. And Rich, let me tell you that it was not an auspicious start. Um, I remember the very first time I was allowed on the radio. I had been writing news for a long time for Chris Gibbons doing the morning news. You know, he would get in at about um, half past five in the morning. I had to wake up at half past two in the morning and get in by three and prepare the newscasts. And at a point he said to me, look, I think you're ready. We've been practicing a long time. He said, I'm going to create a special 5 a.m. and 5.30 bulletin for you. Didn't sleep the previous night was uh, you know at the station, I think at midnight, bulletin was ready, and uh, I watched that clock tick up to five o'clock in the morning. It was supposed to be a three-minute newscast. I got through it in just under 90 seconds. I remember soon afterwards my brother phoning me and saying, listen, if your career in radio fails, um, I know that Turfentine is looking for someone to call horse racing, and I think you'd be just the guy. <laughs> and, and then you phoned a friend, right? Well, I did, Reg. I phoned a friend. In fact, it was a, it was a friend that phoned me. Long after the Eastern Province Herald and before I joined 702, I'd spent some time uh, in Sunday journalism. I worked for the inimitable film producer Anand Singh, and uh, we'd got quite close. Um, he had just started out his career, and I remember writing a couple of profile stories about him, and we headed off. We got on really well. He was a nice guy. And I remember... I had then left 702. I'd done a little bit of breakfast television and I was kind of casting around looking for something to do. Got a call from Anant and he said to me, listen, got the show called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? He said, I think you might be the guy. Uh, would you be interested in having a chat? And I said, Anant, I'm absolutely not interested at all. Basically, I intimated and I said to him, I am a journalist. I am not going to be bothered with silly things like game shows. Essentially, leave me alone. And I then went on holiday. And I seem to remember going to Turkey with my wife. He laughed. and He said, listen, I'm going to send you the cassette. That's how long ago it was. And he said, when you get back, have a look at it. Don't make a decision. Got back from Turkey. Long story short, got the cassette, put it into the, into the VCR player. And within 10 seconds, Reg... I knew that I had made the biggest mistake of my life in blowing Anant off and saying, listen, I wasn't interested. Phoned him up, groveled, supplicated, apologized, apologized some more and said, please, could I have a chance? And he laughed and he said, listen, Mags, I always knew you were the guy. We're starting to tape the show in a month's time. So I was very lucky. And every opportunity I get to apologize to Anant, either personally or publicly, as is the case now, I take that opportunity. What a great success that show was. And then after that, you joined ENCA. Is that right? Or you joined ETV? Well, it was ENCA. So I was, um, so who wants to be a millionaire came to an end. It was a success. It, it, it was ahead of its time. I think we taped over three years. I think I did just over 120 episodes, gave away a million rand uh, once in the, uh, in the show itself, which, by the way, if we've got time, quick story on this one. Actuarially, we were only predicted to give the money away in season two towards the end because 
the secret of these things is there's never actually a million rand in the pot. It's all an insurance policy. So when the guy won it at the end of season one, I remember outwardly there was great jubilation uh, because everyone was delighted that we had a winner. Inside, everyone was absolutely furious, Reg, because what it meant for season two is the insurance premiums on the show would increase dramatically. So um, that's a little backstory to who wants to be a millionaire. Got a call from um, Deborah Patter, who had worked with me at 702. She was the editor-in-chief at that point at uh, ETV News. They were starting ENCA, uh, the country's first 24-hour news channel. It was essentially going to be based on the formula of Sky News in Britain. And um, here I am, Reg, uh, I don't know, 10, 11, almost 12 years later, and I'm, you know, I'm still working for them and still loving it. I do the lunchtime news show. It's simulcast on ETV as well. And there is nothing greater than anchoring a hard-hitting, well-paced, full-of-content news show every single day. And I'm thankful that I'm still there. What made you start Mags on Media? So, Reg, it's a long story. I have always been a frustrated ad guy. Ah, the truth. It's a true story. You know, I, I love the show Mad Men, and I always somewhere saw myself as a creative director making ads. And, Reg, I'm going to just sidetrack very quickly here because I want to pay some tribute to you and to your longstanding colleague, John Hunt, because I started Mags on Media, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But the one thing that fascinates me about the advertising industry is the ability to turn an idea into something tangible that is fundamentally then going to work. I remember sitting in a meeting with John. I, I'd been recording the show for some time. It started out as a radio show and then became a TV show. And I remember sitting in this meeting with John and a whole lot of people were talking about a concept, an idea, and no one was cracking it. And John was sitting in the corner and he was just listening. And all of a sudden he spoke in that very quiet voice that he's got and he said, chaps, why don't we do this? And in three or four sentences, he encapsulated not only the idea and the insight, but what the creative direction was going to do. And I looked and listened to this. And I am in absolute awe, not only of him, but people in your industry, Reg, that are able to do that. I don't know what the secret is, if there is a secret, but... uh I wanted to do that, and even to this day, I wish that I had played some sort of role in advertising. So the next best thing was to report it. So I was doing a radio show on the media when I spent some time at SAFM Radio, got to ENCA. There wasn't a dedicated program on media, communications, branding, and advertising. It seemed a natural space for me to fit into, and um, the rest is history. I mean, I think... You know, last count, um, I think we'd recorded about 600 shows. So, you know, it, and it's still going. You've done a fantastic job. I mean, what you've done is you've brought advertising media to the people and they understand more about it. They understand how we make ads. They understand sort of insights and so on. But what you said about John Hunt is so true. He's just got a knack. So who are some of the most interesting people you've interviewed? 
Reg, you know, that's always a difficult question. I knew this was going to come up. So let me let me try and give you the list of ad people that I found interesting and then people that maybe are a little bit uh, a little bit broader. I was very very lucky in my television career to interview Tony Blair. Um, whether you like the man or not, he was a fascinating insight into how to successfully avoid the question while making it sound like he'd answered it. So that was one of the more interesting interviews that I've done. I've interviewed just about every single president in South Africa from you know, pre-apartheid F.W. de Klerk. I've interviewed Nelson Mandela and Thabo Mbeki and Khalema Motlante and Jacob Zuma and Sir Ramaphosa. So I'm lucky to have interviewed you know, all the big ones as far as that's concerned. On the advertising side, the one person that has absolutely fascinated me is another great creative mind, Sir John Hegarty, um, who also in that same spirit that John Hunter's got, very self-effacing, very humble, but you can see behind that very laconic smile, a mind like a steel trap, and he knows exactly which way an idea needs to be lassoed and harnessed and how to use that idea for the greater good. Reg, there are so many people that I've interviewed, but just off the top of my head, uh, those are the two people that uh, come to mind. Not necessarily the best people, but um, the uh, certainly the most interesting. On radio... Possibly the most fascinating person I spoke to was the Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu. And I wrote in a, in a, in a book that, uh, that I had published last year about uh, talking to winning South Africans that I remember interviewing him on radio and he reached out during the interview in the studio and he held my hand. And I remember feeling this electric shock just course through my body. I'm not a, a religious person necessarily, but I looked at him and he knew what had happened and he smiled. And at the end of the interview, uh, once I was escorting him out of the studio, I asked him about it. I said, what had happened? And you know that trademark cackle that, uh, that Archbishop Desmond Tutu has? He let rip with that and said something along the lines of, my boy, if you don't know what that meant, Best you go and find out. And then he just disappeared. So that was another memorable interview that I did. And who was the most difficult guy you've ever, guy or woman you've ever interviewed? Reg, I, I find any politician who has got an agenda is always going to be difficult because they're always ducking and diving. And it becomes a game of chess between the two of you. And the idea in my business is to try and suck out one nugget of information that is going to move the agenda, that's going to create some news, that's going to develop the soundbite. Because inevitably, politicians are always there to do two things. They're going to recycle information, and they're always campaigning because politics is a game of self-preservation. So there are many difficult people that I have spoken to. But if I look at all of them together in a composite manner, it would be politicians both locally and internationally. I enjoy that thrust and duck and dive and parry that you've got to do with them. Because at the end of the day, and I've been doing a media training course for many, many years, I always say to my clients that they've got to be two winners in an interview because a television or a radio interview is like a blood sport. 
I need to win the interview because of my ratings and to extract information. The other person has got to win the interview because it's about protecting their reputation and their own brand integrity. So not one single person springs to mind, but um, I always get that thrill of anticipation when I know that I've got a politician who I'm going to throw the hook at and I'm going to see what I can, how long it's going to take me to bring them to shore. Did you ever really get angry on air? Did you stop an interview? Did you say, I've had enough of this? Have you ever done anything like that? No, Reg. There have been times when I've been seething inside because of injustice more than anything else. When you are, again, not, not to let this conversation be dominated by politics, but when you're talking to a politician and what you're wanting from them is empathy and understanding on a particular issue and they start talking about themselves and then I get very angry. When I was a young man, uh, that used to boil over sometimes. I have learned though, you're more effective as an interviewer if you keep a lid on it and you just nudge a person in the right direction and if they haven't answered the question, come back at them and say, I'll put the question to you again. And I'll put the question to you a third time. One of the people that I really admire in this in this television industry is a guy called Jeremy Paxman. He used to host a program on BBC Two called Newsnight. He is most famous for asking one politician the same question 13 times. And again, didn't lose his temper. And at the end of that, it was pretty obvious who the winner was. So, no, it's not about losing your temper because it doesn't work. Changing the subject, what do you think the future of broadcast TV is, Jeremy, with all the Netflixes and the Amazons and everybody around? Again, I'm, I'm going to confine my uh, my observations here to, to television news. I still think that for some time television news will be the, the behemoth, that it is still – a first point of call for information for people. I don't think that is going away anytime soon. We have noticed certainly on ENCA and for that matter, the competing local news channels and also the international news channels that um, during this COVID-19 crisis, our audiences have grown because people want the, the pictures, they want the news, they want the contextualization, they want the analytical insight. But if a television station is not moving in the direction of being more robust and successful online on the second screen, then we're dead in the water. I look at my own children, for instance, in their 20s, who do not look at television anymore per se, but they are driven by television content that appears on the second screen. So in the short term, I'm very optimistic about the future of television news on the principal screen, but um, I also acknowledge that more and more content is moving towards that second screen and that television stations have got to be very adept in making sure that they have a clear, discernible online strategy. And by that, I also mean that it's not just putting the same content on the small screen as you're putting on the big screen. It's got to be complementary content, and I guess the same goes for advertising. Yeah, absolutely. And other media in general, I mean, we've seen magazines fall by the wayside and newspapers declining and so on. How do you see the future of, say, newsprint or print in general? 
Well, Reg, if you and I were doing this interview maybe a month ago, I would have been the doomsayer like everybody else. But I was utterly fascinated to see the hugely successful Daily Maverick website launching a newspaper, which I've had a look at, and it is brilliant. I still think that there is, again, it comes back to that complementary strategy. If you look at the New York Times, for instance, uh, you know, they have seen massive growth in their online space and the daily print product remains successful. I think in South Africa, you know, people still have that relationship with the tactility of print. I look at this daily maverick. The argument they're putting forward is that people still want to read a newspaper. Uh, if you look at the broad demographic of South African readers and listeners, you know, you look at a newspaper like the Daily Sun, for instance, that still has a predominantly blue collar reading demographic, but is still taken up. So I think it's too early to call the death knell on newspapers. I think that it's a gradual migration online, but I certainly think in your lifetime and my lifetime, they'll be around. I think it's more niche. I think it's more specialist. I think that the age of the broad title is gone, but give me something that is very specific to my interests or my wider circle of interests. I think it still has a role to play. There's something like the Sunday Times, for example. Do you think that's still got a huge future or do you think it's too broad? I, I think that it's going to take a long time for the habit of the Sunday newspaper to be stripped away from us. I am aware that every time I look at the ABC, the Audit Bureau of Circulation Figures, I see that there's a gradual slippage when it comes to the big mega titles like the Sunday Times. But the reality is if the big Sunday newspapers continue to produce the big read, the big investigation, the big splash, the big takeout, um, I still think that there is a role for them. But again, unless it is buttressed by a strong online complementary strategy than they did in the water. And I think that it's a, an issue that all big media houses are, um, are grappling. Moving on to ad agencies. How do you see them and how do you see them changing? Again, I, I'm going to come back to your own agency. I remember one of the leaders that, that you appointed at Hunts was a guy called Mike Bosman. And, um, who I'm, if I'm not mistaken, probably lives in the same area that you do. I remember Mike telling me once that you could judge an advertising agency success by the noise you felt when you walked in through the front door. (laughs) And uh, I think that's a good barometer for me. And I remember as of late, I mean, obviously with lockdown, it's been a little bit more difficult, but Reg, I'm going to be very honest with you. I trawl the advertising agency world like a shark. I'm there. I pop into all of them most of the time. In the last 18 months to two years, those foyers have become a little quieter. I think advertising agencies are under pressure. I think that they are under threat from marketers saying we can do this job more cost-effectively internally. And I am perpetually impressed at the emergence either of the small specialist shops or something that I've noticed, the the, the formation of these collectives uh, where you have a group of really impressive senior advertising people who work for themselves but within a collective. And I think that's the next big threat. 
I think running an advertising agency these days must be very difficult. I look at, you know, budgets being slashed all the time. I look at the lifeblood, which was television commercials, not being made with the same alacrity that they used to. So I think that there's a lot of reinvention that still needs to happen. I'm not entirely sure, Reg, whether those people leading agencies these days know exactly what the nature of that reinvention has to be. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to be in the business right now as, a, as an no, agent. I think there's a lot of fragmentation. As you say, a lot of people doing their own thing, especially in the digital arena, because it's much easier to do. And you're right. Agencies are reinventing themselves, but maybe too slowly. Let me go behind the mask of Jeremy. What do you do for fun? I like to go to gym. Uh, because the older I've got, um, I have a propensity to put on weight. So I am, I am an inveterate gym goer. I have a basset hound who is 11 years old. Uh, his name is Jamison. As you and I are speaking, he's lying at my feet. Unless I walk him every single day uh, for a, a, a half an hour of solitude in a big park near my house, his day and my day is not, is, is not great. Reg, I read a lot. I am a great watcher of... I love political uh, television series. Um, I was a huge fan of The West Wing. Um, so I spend a lot of time uh, doing that. And, Reg, I'm a, f- a little bit ashamed to say that um, as I start to exit my 50s, I've suddenly become a whole lot more interested. And I don't want you to laugh, Reg. I've become a whole lot more interested in gardening, believe it or not. So as I'm speaking to you now, I'm looking out over my garden and I, I, I can see little bits of a garden bed that I need to work on this Saturday. And I'm starting to feel like my father. And that worries me slightly. And what scares you? I am a great believer in this country. I really am. Uh, I, I could not conceive of living anywhere else. And I'm, what scares me is the huge, problem that we have, and I'm choosing my words carefully, which is why I'm slowing up slightly, the huge problem of endemic corruption in this country and the inevitable slide uh, towards chaos. Maybe I'm closer to the coalface than most people because I deal with this every single day. But I'm, what scares me the most is that I think we are very close to a precipice if we're not on that precipice already. And I'm scared that it's not going to work. And I just think that every single person who has a voice, uh, who is in a position of influence, and that would mean people like you and me have an obligation to be brave and to speak out against things like corruption and to make sure that we protect this country for future generations. I did an interview the other day um, with one of the ANC elders. And one of the questions I put to him was, did he think that the vision and the dream that Nelson Mandela had of this country uh, was was over? Have we betrayed that dream? And he said to me, if we haven't betrayed it already, we are very close to doing that. And my caution is that we should all try as right-minded South Africans uh, to work collectively to pull us back because I'm scared of where we might go. 
And yeah, that does keep me awake at night, to use a cliche. I do think about it a lot. Jeremy, those are very, very wise words. And thank you very, very much. It's been great switching roles. I've had such fun. Um, And Leonardo da Vinci said, wisdom is the daughter of experience. And you've had such fantastic experience and you've done so well and you've helped the industry so much. I just really want to thank you. Reg, thank you. It's been an absolute joy talking to you and it's been such a privilege and a pleasure to have known you for such a long time. Thanks for listening to Market Share with me, Reg Lascaris. I'll be back soon with another episode giving my take on brands and companies, big and small, in South Africa and elsewhere. So chat soon. Cheers. Cheers.